Amen. All right. Uh, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Psalm 78. And uh, we're going to work through our worksheet on the back. So since it's been a while since we've done this, just by way of review, uh, we don't need to have an exhaustive list of every single one of these items, but I think it would be good to highlight some of them just for the sake of um, both it's a good skill for Bible study and also just for understanding the psalm before I have a, kind of a brief exposition of it here a little bit later. And so we'll start off, as we have been doing, with uh, Psalm 78, and particularly if there are figures of speech that you notice, certainly a longer psalm, uh, 72 verses, so there's a bunch of them that we could look at, but um, any that stand out to you first of all. Figures of speech, kind of poetic language, Paul? Okay, yeah. What do we think that might mean? Okay, could be dark sayings of old. Uh, given the parallelism with parable, it might be connected with that, right? So if we take it as a, as a contrasting parallelism, then it would be, here's negative examples from the past, right? Or it could be dark as in kind of like cryptic. You've got to think about them a while to have them make sense. So that would be the other possibility. Um, if we take, what's that? Okay, yeah, bedtime story, no. Uh, if we take it potentially in parallel with what Peter says about Paul, he says, with Paul's writings, there are things hard to understand, which the unstable twist to their own devices or something along those lines. So if Peter says, hey, Paul's a hard guy to follow, it would follow that there are potentially things that Solomon and others said by way of, of um, wisdom literature that takes some thinking about to make sense of. So I think we'd probably see some of that idea in the verses there. Um, moving on down. Um, what, what's another image that you might see? Jared? Okay. Okay, what's the, what's the picture there? Yeah, so the, yeah, so is it is it that the warrior is overcome with rage or is it that he was overcome by wine and was asleep? And that's the again, I think it's important to see the parallelism and it can be like a building together. So it could be anger alongside sleep has two different sides of the effects of wine. I I might see it more as just he's saying the warrior's overcome like he's asleep and then all of a sudden he wakes up, sort of burst in on the scene. Now God's not actually like that, right? But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so we'd have to say, does it parallel the phrase, the first part of 65, or does it kind of go into 66 where he drives his enemies backward? So, okay, definitely something to consider there. Paul? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. And e even if we took it as he was suddenly awoken from a drunken stupor, again, unpredictable and dangerous either way, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, how about verse 35? What do we see there? I know. We already jumped to the end. We can jump around wherever. What does it say in verse 35? What's the... God is a rock, which means he's their foundation, refuge, help, deliverer. Um, okay? Some other ones, since there's cries of being skipped. What are some of the other ones, Sandra? Okay, 34. What do you see there? Okay. Well, it depends on what you're talking about, because there were a lot of times where he sent plagues, and a number of them... Uh, I would agree that he doesn't kill off the entire group, but the times when he kills some of them by plagues, the rest of them turn in repentance. So, um, so yeah, so, but we would have to ask ourselves, is that a, 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 a figure of speech for describing judgment, or is it actually saying some of them died and the other ones straightened up right away? So, okay, good. So what is that? What's that pointing to? Yeah. Okay. And and what what is the poetry emphasizing about the the provision? Abundant. Abundant. Okay. Yeah. Good. Dust, sand of the sea, can't count it. Innumerable. Yeah. Um, how about verse 23, since that's not far from where we were there? Yeah, doors of heaven is basically, he sends rain, okay? Uh, well, actually in this case, it's not uh, sending rain, it's sending the manna. It's like he's opening his storehouse and, and just bringing it out to them. Um, God sent them grain from heaven? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rain down manna upon them, as though it's a rainstorm, even though it's not actually rain or water. Okay. Verse 10. Mm -hmm. uh, they walk in his law. Now, we normally just think that straightforward as they're obeying the law and they're putting their life in order with the law, but the walking is, you know, not literal necessarily. Yeah, so it kind of parallels some of the stuff we see in Ephesians where Paul says, walk in a worthy manner, your way of life. Okay, yeah. Uh, how about verse um, 52? What's the picture there? People are like sheep. He's like their shepherd. Okay, that'll become important a little bit later. Okay, good. And there's several other ones. Um, he builds up his sanctuary like the heights. Uh, he rejects the tent, verse 67. Um, the people turn aside like a treacherous bow, verse 57. Uh, they are flesh paralleling wind, as in it's there and it's gone, verse 39. I think those are some of the main ones there. Uh, any repeated phrases that you notice? There's a, a number of them, and sometimes they're not always... Sometimes they're synonyms instead of the exact same word over and over. 
but I think there's several things that are repeated here. Ideas. Okay, remember is an important one, okay? Remember contrasted with forget. There's several instances where it says that they forget. Okay? Okay. Okay, led, brought, sheep, shepherd, all that. Okay, good. That whole cluster of things, yes? Okay, yeah, so we're going to build on that idea of remember, not just remember for yourself, but remember and pass on truth, okay? And what are we going to remember? Because that's another part of what's repeated here. Yeah, what God has done for them, okay? Um, so we have basically a faithful God who's done mighty deeds that the people ought to remember, and we have unfaithful people who are forgetful and disobedient and don't remember all the things that God has done. Uh, and then the result of that is what? what? What's the result of their unbelief on God's part? Yeah, wrath, judgment, destruction, okay. With the goal, again, of trying to bring them back to believing and following after him. Um, so those are some of the repeated phrases. Um, if we were to look at the structure of it, it kind of has a, a, an alternating structure, I guess we could say. So, for example, we have verses 1 through 4, sort of the introduction, all of these things that he was going to do, and then he establishes these things so that they would not forget, and then there's an example of how they forgot. And then there's an example of God's power, verses uh, 12 through 16, then an example of their unfaithfulness, verses 17 through 20, then an example of God's judgment, uh, 21 and following, and then um, they return again in verses 34 through 39, but even then their hearts aren't steadfast for him. And so there's this alternating back and forth. God does something they fail to follow or remember. God judges them. They turn back to him for a while. And that's pretty much sums up, this sums up the history of Israel. God's faithful, they're unfaithful. God punishes them. They come back for a while, then they're unfaithful again, especially in the book of Judges but even in longer cycles all throughout the reigns of the kings, especially of the north and even some in the southern kings of, the, of uh, Judah. And yet, most of this is not actually directed toward um, that time period. The judges, yes, not so much the reigns of the kings that would come after, because this ends with God appointing David uh, to lead them. So um, what we'll do now, uh, actually before we do that, uh, what type of psalm is this? It's a little tricky, but I would agree it's a wisdom psalm. Why? Yeah. The other category that might fit is this idea of royal or covenantal, in that it highlights God's faithful promises and their unfaithfulness to it. Um, again, that comes down to how many categories you have. If you have three or four, then it's a wisdom psalm. If you have six to eight, then it would be like a royal or covenantal psalm. Yes, Mike. One comes to me as a lament psalm because God is talking how much he had struggled through the whole psalm. Yeah, and I think there's features of lament in most of the psalms, but I don't think we would call the overall thing a lament psalm because... Uh, and this has been a long time since we looked at this, but when you look at the structure, there's key repeated phrases in a lament psalm. How long, my soul is weary, all those sorts of things. And we don't see any of that personal testimony sort of expression here like we do in other places. So I think there's definitely features of lament, but I still think it probably leans more toward wisdom, instruction, 
or else a royal covenantal kind of psalm. Um, Paul? It's I agree, since they're not lamenting in the psalm, we're just recounting their failures and how they, you know, God continued to punish them because of their yeah. failures. They should have been, but it doesn't seem that they were too much. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, truths about God. Any particular ones that stand out to you? Faithful. Yeah, God's faithfulness to Israel. God is faithful. Okay, good. What else? Other? Okay, yeah. So there's this idea of, um, I'm not trying to throw out too many Greek and Hebrew words, but this idea of chesed, like this idea of covenant, loyalty, faithfulness, loving kindness. It's translated a bunch of ways depending on the translation. Um, but this bond that God has with his people that is the reason why he keeps all his promises to them. Uh, what else? Any other things about God or about people? What, what do we notice about people from this psalm? Very fickle. Yeah, we're very fickle. Short memories, disobedient and treacherous, going our own way. Okay? All right. Let, yeah, yeah, God's definitely compassionate here. So let me do this, and you can take notes on the right side of your sheet if you want. Let me just take a few minutes and just kind of try to tie all these ideas together. The main point here of Psalm 78 is, um, my, my Bible has the title, someone's taken a, a, a go at it, God's guidance of his people in spite of their unfaithfulness. And um, I, I went for something a little bit shorter, remember God, your shepherd. Hopefully that's a little bit easier to remember. And I'll show you why I have that here in a little bit. But uh, we start out here that the point of this, the reason it's written down, and I think this is important to remember when it comes to history, history is not recorded just to be dry, empty facts with no significance. When history is recorded in the scripture, it is meant to be instructive. So, for example, it talks about that you, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Or in 1 Corinthians 10, that you would not sin in the same ways that they did. I think we see more of that uh, emphasized here, but we do see some of the elements of hope because of trust and confidence in God's character when man's character fails. And so uh, this is designed to teach people about Israel's past so that they would remember what God had done so that they would then obey their God. So uh, we see that idea of passing things down. Verse 4, we will not conceal them from their children but tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord, verse 4, his strength, his wondrous works that he has done. So that's sort of the purpose statement. The goal is to pass on this truth to the next generation so they don't make the same mistakes. And then it says why. For one, God commanded them to do so, verse 5, and uh, sort of built this in. And this is not a... We tend to think of this in a New Testament concept, uh, 2 Timothy, the things you've heard of me, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But this is very much an Old Testament concept as well. The content of what's being passed on is a little bit different. For Paul with Timothy and those who came after, it was the gospel and the teaching of the apostles. For the people of Israel, it's primarily things about their history and the law and the covenant that God has established with them. But in both instances, there's truth about God to be passed on to the next generation with a goal of obedience. And, and, you know, even Ephesians 6, this idea of bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, parallels Deuteronomy 6, I think it is, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and, and here's the things you're supposed to teach your children. As you go by the wayside, as you lie down, as you go in and, in and out of your house, 
teach them these things. And so we see this great unity between what the Israelites were supposed to do and what the church is supposed to do in remembering God's works that's supposed to lead then to obedience. However, despite the fact that they were supposed to pass on this truth, often they did not. And despite the fact that they were supposed to learn from this truth, often they did not. And so we see the first example here in verse 9. Uh, the sons of Ephraim were archers, but they turned back in the day of battle. There were times when God said, go, and they said, no, we don't want to. We don't trust that God's going to help us. We don't think that we can, for example, conquer the land of Canaan. And so they wandered the wilderness. And it's interesting because uh, we're going to see, particularly when we get to verse 67, it says, God rejected the tent of Joseph, did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah. There's a transition in this passage from the blessing that we see at the end of Genesis of God toward Joseph because of Joseph's faithfulness. Then there's this long stretch of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh being disobedient to God, perhaps even being instigators of rebellion against God. And so there is a transition to the tribe of Judah receiving prominence among the people of Israel. Now, that calls into question all sorts of things like, did God fail to keep his promise to Ephraim and Manasseh? No. They had the largest portion in the land. They had bountiful opportunities to follow after God. They just didn't do it. And so with no um, discredit to Joseph, because he was definitely faithful before God, or necessarily even Ephraim and Manasseh, but generations later, they, they lose their prominence among the Israelites. The northern tribes are the ones that fall into darkness and idolatry and even exile first because of their rejection. And even early on, there's this shift to the tribe of Judah being the one that has the preeminence. Um, but then it highlights all the things that God had done. They turned back in the day of battle despite the fact that God did the miracles, the plagues in the land of Egypt, that he led them with the cloud and the fire, that he provided water for them uh, so that they would not die in the wilderness. So despite all those things, they said, eh, we don't think we can trust you, God. We're not going to follow you, God. We don't want to do what you say. Take us back to Egypt. We're better off as slaves. All of the same sort of nonsense that, that sin blinds us to the realities of where we were, and we think, oh, it was better that way. Well, let's go back to it. And this wasn't something that just happened once. Verse 17 says, they continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. They put God to the test. This idea of putting God to the test is fascinating because um, when God puts people to the test and tests their faith, it's appropriate. But when people test God and say, God, I'm going to disagree and argue and not do what you want me to do, when we test God uh, and call into question his character, which really was what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do by jumping off the temple. Test God. See if he's going to keep his promises. See if he's going to fulfill his plan. He said, you're going to go to the cross. Why don't you just dive off the temple instead and see what happens? It's testing God to call into question his faithfulness, his purposes, all the things that he's promised to do. And so that's what the people are here. They say, well, God's given us water. I wonder if he can feed us too. What's God's response? His righteous response, verse 21, is wrath. Because, not because they asked for food, and not because they referenced the fact that he had given them water, but verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. This is, I think, a really important thing to notice here because when we, um, when we think about children with their parents or grandkids with their grandparents or whatever, 
There's an expectation that those we love are going to do things that are good for us. So, Mike, one of your grandkids comes up to you. You're not going to give them like a, a handful of thorns off the rose bush and be like, ah, oh, you wanted a candy bar. Good luck. Here's what you got. Well, maybe. But theoretically would not. Um, but the point is, if we trust the character of the one giving the gift, we, we come with expectation we're going to receive something good. And they didn't come like that. They said, eh, I don't know if you can do it, God. I don't know if you're going to give me something good. This other thing was good. I don't know if you're going to do something good. And so this attitude of unbelief, not trusting in God's salvation, is the reason that God's wrath comes against them. And yet, in his wrath, he still gives them provision. He gives them manna. And then some of them say, we're not going to follow the instructions. And it it went bad and they got sick, right? Uh, He gives them the quail. He shows, "I I can rain it two feet deep on the ground all around your camp. The problem is not my provision. The problem is your rebellious unbelief, which, why, uh, which is why, going back to what, what Sandra pointed out uh, as far as does he kill them or not, um, it says in verse uh, 29, they ate and were well filled. He gave them their desire. Verse 30, before they had satisfied their desire while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, killed some of their stoutest ones, and subdued the choice men of Israel. So perhaps directed most toward the leaders of the rebellion against God, but perhaps all of them to some degree, there were many who died in their greed and unbelief and even as they're enjoying the meat that God had provided for them. And yet, even this act of judgment doesn't turn many of them to follow after him. Verse 32, In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe his wonderful works. When it says he brought their days to an end in futility, I think that's a reference to the wilderness wanderings where you have 40 years of people dying until all the generation had died off that came out of Egypt. And so their repeated unbelief, questioning of Moses, going their own way, forgetting what God had done, led ultimately to their deaths in the wilderness. The next generation, I think, is what's referenced in verses 34 and following. And yet, although at first they set out to follow God, what happens overall? They don't keep his promises. He says, go, you know, conquer the land. We don't go conquer the land. He says, worship me alone. They get tangled up with all these idols. And he sends cycle after cycle of judgment and judge and deliverance. And, and then, they, um, then they go back into sin. And then they are under judgment again and repentance and a new judge and deliverance and all these things. God, I think, is in these instances that are referenced, particularly in the book of Judges, I think is what's in view in verses 34 through 39. They deceived him with their mouth, they lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he was compassionate, he forgave them. He forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them, not that none of them were judged, but overall he did not destroy them all. Often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. If he had put it forth, then there's that instance where God's having the conversation with Moses. I can wipe them all out and we can start over. Moses intercedes and and God relents and there's that picture of the intercessor. But God certainly had the power. If he put forth all his wrath, he would blot them out from the face of the earth. But he doesn't. Does he judge many of them? Sometimes large numbers of them? Yes. But not completely destroy them. And the reason, I think, is in verse 39. He remembers that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. Or another uh, psalm says they remember that they were but dust. Uh, Possibly a different translation here of this verse. Uh, God remembers their temporary nature and shows patience and compassion where they didn't deserve it. 
And yet, how often they rebelled. He returns to this theme of what happened in the wilderness. They rebelled in the wilderness and grieved in the desert. And they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. And then he recounts all of the things that he did in the land of Egypt. So there's sort of this bookend of God's mercy and compassion in the middle, verses 34 to 39. Before it, here's all the things that God did for them. After it, it recounts all the plagues against the people of Egypt, uh, down through verse uh, 51. In contrast to the plagues that fall upon the Egyptians, God leads his people as his own flock, verses 52 and 53. Then the sea engulfs their enemies. That's a reference to the Red Sea when it closes over Pharaoh and his armies. God brings them to the land that he had promised them. He drives out the nations before them, verse 55, and gives them an inheritance. And yet their rebellion persists, verse 56, 57, and so on. In this case, not so much the complaining, although... That comes up here and there, Uh, but primarily the idolatry. Verse 58, they provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword, and his widows could not weep. When does this take place? Well, there's much defeat by the Philistines uh, in a certain time frame uh, of Israel's history, so perhaps in reference to that, uh, particularly given the fact that all this took place and it sort of builds to the end of the psalm where David steps in as a major character. So I think what's in view here is the defeat of even Saul himself being nearly put to death by the Philistines and actually committing suicide so he isn't, has someone kill him actually. Um, All of this takes place because of their unfaithfulness to God. And then there's this picture that we talked about a few minutes ago, that God awakes as if from sleep. God rouses himself. God steps in to deliver his people. He sets aside um, the people of Ephraim and Manasseh, and he chooses the tribe of Judah. He builds his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has founded forever. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him, and here's the fascinating thing. He takes David, who was an actual shepherd, to be a figurative shepherd for the people of Israel. We tend to think of David as the mighty warrior, David as the king, all these sorts of things. But here he's described as the shepherd for God's people Israel. And it says, verse 72, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. I think in this psalm, when it says to remember God as your shepherd, I think it is an anticipation of what we see in John chapter 10 of Jesus being the good shepherd. I think no one would argue with the idea that David is seen in many places as a forerunner of Christ. Well, let me just point this out to you here uh, in chapter 10. It says... Um, It talks about at the beginning of the chapter, for example, uh, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way as a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. There's the idea of the appointed shepherd versus all the other ones who are sort of doing their own thing. Jesus is the door of the sheep. He's also the way to God the Father. There's all this imagery is sort of wrapped up together 
but I think it looks back to places like Psalm 78, where David is described as the shepherd for the people of Israel. Think about Jesus when he looks out at the Jews in his day. What does he say? He had compassion on them because they were scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And so just like in David's day, the people are scattered, they have an ungodly leader in the person of Saul and many before them in, in the time of the judges, and God steps in and gives them David as their leader, so too, when the Jews are scattered and unfaithful and going their own way, God steps in and provides Jesus as the good shepherd. And so it's fascinating again to see the connection between this passage, Psalm 78, and what God was going to do through Jesus, and then what that means for us. So I think if we're going to apply a passage like Psalm 78, we have to look at it on this side of John 10, which is to say, here's Psalm 78, here's John 10, and then we're right here. And so uh, what would be the application for us? Not look to David as the deliverer or the shepherd, but as I said the title for Psalm 78, remember God is your shepherd, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does that look like on a daily basis? Well, it looks like thinking about the ways that God has shown you mercy when you have sinned. It means thinking about the ways that God has delivered you in many ways from all sorts of difficulties. It means telling people around you, particularly younger generations, about God and his works. And so even though we don't have an exact parallel to the experiences of the Israelites in Psalm 78, when we bring it connection with John chapter 10, and we look at all the things that the New Testament says about teaching and remembering and fearing God and passing on truth to the next generation, there's a lot of continuity between what we see happening in the Old Testament and what we see happening in the New Testament. And so just like the Israelites were supposed to remember God as their shepherd, you and I are supposed to remember God as our shepherd in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, a God who forgives our sin and has mercy on us, a God who does mighty deeds on our behalf, a God who deserves praise and being described to generations to come. So hopefully that's a, a helpful look there at, at Psalm 78 and how it, how it fits for us today. Uh, we'll transition now to our prayer time. Any, uh, any prayer requests? There were a couple I wanted to highlight for you. Um, several of you are aware of this. I wasn't until earlier today. Uh, Retta's cousin... Uh, lost her grandson, Elliot. Um, he had, I think, bone marrow transplant, something like that. That was going well, but then because his immune system was suppressed, he caught COVID and died very suddenly. So be in prayer for that family because it's a, a hard loss. They, they thought he was coming out of the first major set of issues, and then now this, this came up. Uh, pray also for uh, the Canes. I talked to Jim, I think it was this morning, uh, that uh, he is... Um, He's doing somewhat better, but they're, uh, they, they may or may not be here till Sunday. So, I mean, hopefully they'll be here Sunday, as this is what I was trying to say. Um, I went and saw Varian uh, and his wife today, Krista. Um, pray for them. She actually had like a TIA, a minor stroke, in the last few days. So he was recovering from the bleeding incident. Then she has a TIA. They're trying to get back and forth to the hospital. It's just a lot going on. Um, She's doing okay now. They gave her some stuff to kind of help reduce risk of blood clots and all those things. But both of them having health issues is a, definitely a challenge at this time. He's started the first phase, which is not as intensive as the next one. But the first phase is going to drop his immune system a little bit, try to get some of the skin conditions to clear up. 
And then the next one's going to basically completely suppress his immune system, and he's going to have to be very careful for about two months. And then they're going to try to do that surgery, basically, since, um, since the sweat glands don't work and they keep getting infected, they're going to do a surgery, but they've got to get all the inflammation calmed down or it's going to be really bad if they try to do it. So let's pray for that, because like with Elliot, you know, there's a lot of risk of things floating around, and so he could get very sick while they're trying to solve this other problem. Um, pray for uh, just that he and his wife, and um, also for Jaden, that they would be trusting in God. I mean, he would definitely profess to be a believer, uh, but I need to have more conversations with him about that. So uh, he's interested in joining the church, so we need to got to kind of hash that out with him. Uh, I went back over to Leo's, and I, I mistimed it, so nobody was there. It was just me and a couple of the people working there. So, uh, But not every week is going to be an amazing opportunity, so that's just how it goes. But I've got to, I guess, procrastinate a little bit on getting breakfast if I want to see more people. So, um, Anyways, uh, I also wanted to mention um, Kitsy had eye surgery. She had uh, some... I almost described it kind of like roughness on the surface around her pupil, and so they kind of ground it off with a tool, which was kind of painful, and so then she's been recovering from that procedure and uh, doing well, but she's kind of got to stay close to the house for another week or two as that continues to heal. Um, and she mentioned a couple of people for prayer for salvation. Uh, Candace is a friend of hers that she knew back from maybe high school, so they've been friends a long time, lives out west. And then Everett's a guy that came to do some kind of maintenance on her back door, I think, and she was able to share the gospel with him. So she wanted us to remember them for prayer for salvation. Other, uh, other updates, requests? Yes, Norma. Okay. All right. What else? Anything else? Mike. Okay. Okay. Give them a little space. All right. Anything else? Prayer requests? Praises? Yeah, Rob. <laughs> Sandra. You're saying it's better now than before you got COVID? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those things aren't fun to go through, but it's good to see. Okay. Anything else? All right. Go ahead and uh, divide up into some groups, 
and then we'll pray together until about, uh, probably about 10 after. So, all right, thank you for your attention. Thank you, Pastor. Oh, Tina, go ahead. Oh, no, I said thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. You have a good night. It's good to, good to hear from you. Yeah, thank you. I hope to be there Sunday. All right, well, we'll look forward to that. You have a good night, okay? Okay, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.